Luke chapter 7, verse 33, through to chapter 8, verse 3. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he is a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. When the religious leaders were forming an opinion about this Jesus bloke, they got a lot of things wrong, uh, but there's one spot where they were they were right on, and that's when they said, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
And of course, they thought that that was a terrible, terrible thing to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but that was the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. Now, when I used to work at the Ag College, they had a, they had a lot of neat stuff, a lot of good things that not everybody had. And, and something they had which was really good was a, was a really good wash, wash down by a, a good wash block with a free phase hot water, pressure cleaner. And it was really good. But the problem was there's a lot of times I wasn't allowed to use it. And that's when the thing that I was using was just way too dirty to use on that thing. So sometimes you'd have to get a tractor and hook it up to a tanker and drag it down the paddock and take a pump down with you so you can wash off all the muck. And so, so you get the thing nearly clean and then you could bring it into the wash block where you finish it off. And I get that because a heap of mud and stuff's gonna clog up the grease trap and it'd be a real pain. You know, because you know what they say about black soil? You stick to it in the dry and it'll stick to you in the wet. Um, and there was a lot of that at Dolby. But some of us can be like that when it comes to church. Yes, we know that Jesus came to save sinners and we like the thought of that. But what about when sinners start coming through the door? Are we so happy with that? Um, or, or do we expect them to hose their sinful past off down the paddock somewhere before they turn up here? And then we'll just sort of tidy them up, give them the final tidy up. And if they are welcome, how are they going to know that they're welcome? Now, I reckon I know you lot well enough to be able to say, yes, of course they'll be welcome. Um, I'm pretty sure that nothing would give us greater joy than for the worst sinner in St George to turn up here this morning, um, to step into this church, to want, wanting to know how they can be saved. No, nothing would give us greater joy, would it? I'm sort of looking for, a, oh, no, that'd be great. That'd be great. It would be great. Oh, good, good. But do they know this? Do they know that it would give us joy for the worst sinner in town to come here hoping to find Jesus. When's the last time that you actually invited someone who's not the most couth of characters, seriously invited them home to your place for a meal? Or when's the last time you offered, look, I'll, I'll pick you up and bring you to church and then we'll, I'll take you home and we'll have lunch afterwards? You see, doing this, making sure that they know that they truly are welcome. You see, Sometimes that there is a very real exclusion where the feeling is, oh, I'm not sure I really want that person here. You know, that, they make me feel very uncomfortable. I've heard things about them that, that are not very savoury. And even if we hold our words back and we don't let on with our words, often it'll be our body language that betrays us because we're still feeling, oh, not too sure and people are very good at reading body language and they'll very soon pick up, I don't belong here. Now, I pray to God that that does not happen here. But probably more often than what we realise, while that is a, a real exclusion, probably more often than what we realise, there can be a perceived exclusion. It's really uncomfortable for a sinner who knows that they're a sinner, to come into the midst of a holy people. And that is what we are. 
you know, a lot of Christians will react against, oh, no, 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 wait, I'm not holy. You know, because we sort of picture holy as a bad thing, as an unapproachable thing, as a, as a I'm a holier than thou thing. But no, the whole thing is we are holy. That's the whole reason that Jesus came to the cross, to save us. At one time, we were not holy, but by the forgiveness and the sanctification of God, we now truly are holy. If you've got a problem with that, you better get over it because you are holy. That's what God sent Jesus to do. And when a sinner comes into the presence of those who are holy, that can be a really uncomfortable experience for them. And they may find themselves feeling, I'm not good enough. I don't belong here. And so it's really important for us to reach out and to be truly welcoming, to go out of our way to be engaging with such people. Now, I actually had a bit of a giggle um, in the section that we were in last week. In chapter 7, back in verse 29, it said, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too. It's sort of like as if the tax collectors weren't people. When all the people heard this, oh, and the tax collectors. You know, as if the tax collectors weren't people. And in the eyes of Jesus's generation, the tax collectors must have been seen as the lowest of the low, as the epitome of what, is, what a sinner is. What example would we use today? Who is the sinner that we would consider the lowest of the low? And would we welcome them into this room today? Would you welcome the bully who made your life in primary school and high school in absolute misery? Would you welcome the scammer who rings up and telling people, oh, I'm on the phone to help you fix your computer and targeting the elderly and those who just don't know so much? Would we welcome a rapist? Or somebody who's abused children? Who would we consider the worst of sinners? Um, who, whoever would make us feel the most uncomfortable, that person is the example of what a tax collector was to Jesus's generation. And the Pharisees hit the nail on the head. Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is indeed a friend to the worst sinner that you can imagine. Um, last time, Jesus was invited to a meal. It was at a tax collector's house. And the Pharisees said, why do you eat with people like that? And Jesus' reply was, it's the sick who need a doctor. Uh, basically is saying it, it's a sinner who needs a saviour. And, and the wisdom of God in the way that he calls sinners to repentance is demonstrated by the fruit of those who respond to the gospel. The worst of sinners can be totally changed, can be made holy, renewed. They can be born again into the Lord Jesus Christ and become a completely new creation. That is the wisdom of God. And this concept, it cannot be a foreign concept to us because it's our story. It's your story. It's my story. Even the Apostle Paul 
who was a diligent Pharisee, right? This is a bloke who used to really pride himself on all of his good works and keeping all of the religious rules and regulations and the Jewish law. He realized when he met Jesus, he realized that before he became a Christian, he was the worst of sinners, even though he'd been striving hard to be extra holy. And so the wisdom of God is demonstrated even in us. The wisdom of God is him taking a dirty, rotten sinner, me, you, and forgiving, renewing, sanctifying to a state of pure holiness. And God is glorified because of that. Righto, so a Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. Now, a Pharisee is a separated one, is someone who is so intent on maintaining his own holiness, he couldn't bear to mix with anything or with anyone who might rub a bit of impurity off onto him. And so Jesus turns up for dinner. And the phrase is, they reclined at table. Now, they didn't eat with tables and chairs, the same as what we did do. Um, they had a, a little low table, and they would all lay down on the ground with their head up the table end and the feet sticking away from the table. Sort of like what we would lay on, a, we'd put out a picnic blanket and lay down on a picnic blanket and put a bit of tucker on the, on the icebox lid or something and just pick off that as we're having a picnic. Right now, the older I get, the more uncomfortable this sounds. Um, it's, Margaret knows exactly what I'm talking about. Margaret and I, we take a folding chair wherever we go, don't we, Margaret? That's right. Because uh, we don't want to have to be laying down while we eat. Very inefficient. But, but then a woman who is described as a woman of the city who was a sinner, which probably, most probably is code for a prostitute, um, or at least a woman of loose moral character, she hears that Jesus is there and she turns up. And she stood behind Jesus, so at Jesus' feet end, weeping. And when she realised that her tears were wetting Jesus' feet, she gets down and dries them with her own hair and then she kisses his feet and anoints him with perfumed oil. And when the Pharisee saw that unfolding, uh, it sounds, his, by his response, we sort of think, mm-hmm, he's pretty disgusted by this. Because he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is who's touching him. She is a sinner. Now, when he said that to himself, it's probably just going through his head. But the thing is, Jesus not only knew exactly what sort of woman she was, he also knew exactly what Simon the Pharisee was thinking. He said, Simon, I've got something to say to you. He said, yeah, what? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, a denarii was basically a day's pay for a labourer. So if we say that a day's pay for a labourer might be about $250 today, so we're talking about the equivalent of one of them owed him $125,000 and the other owed him $12,500. And the thing is, neither of them could afford to pay back the loan, right? They, they were destitute. Only one owed more than the other. And so the money lender said to them both, 
look, canc I've cancelled your debt. You don't have to pay it back. Which one's going to love him more? And Simon said, oh, well, suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. Jesus said, yep, that's right. And then Jesus drew a comparison of the love that Jesus had received from the woman compared to the love and the simple respect that Jesus had not received from Simon the Pharisee. Now, a loving host, or at least any host back then, it was expected that when your guests turned up, you'd provide them with a bowl of water and a towel so that they could wash their feet before dinner because they turn up off their, off their dusty roads, having walked in sandals, uh, cleaning feet was, was the done thing. But Simon didn't do that, didn't provide any of that. But the woman wet Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her own hair. It was customary to, to greet a guest with a kiss. Simon the Pharisee didn't lower himself to, to kiss Jesus. But the woman kissed Jesus' feet. It was also customary for, to anoint an honoured guest's head with oil. Once again, that didn't happen here, but the woman broke open an expensive jar of perfumed oil and used that on Jesus. Why? Because she loved Jesus a lot. Why did she love Jesus a lot? Because she was forgiven a lot. She knew that she was a sinner. But before that dinner, sometime, she must have heard Jesus' preaching out in the city. Why else would she know that, what would she have come to, to Jesus at this point? And we know that Jesus, wherever he went, the message that he was giving was of repentance and forgiveness of sin for sinners. And she knew that that invitation of repentance and forgiveness was for her. Now, we need to be really clear in what verse 47 is saying. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, forgives little. Right? It wasn't the love that she was showing Jesus that caused her to be forgiven. It was the forgiveness that she'd already received that caused her response of love to Jesus. Do you understand the difference here? Bringing more gifts, doing more service, giving more love, that isn't going to increase your forgiveness. But when in faith we respond to Jesus, repent of sin and receive forgiveness, wow! How great the love that, that we have for Jesus in response to that. And the more that we're forgiven, the more that we become aware of the forgiveness that we have received and the more that we love Jesus in return. It was evident how much this woman had been forgiven because of how much love she was showing Jesus. And so Jesus voiced this, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, not everybody was happy for Jesus to say this. Those there who are going, who, who is this? If he gives sins, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She wasn't saved by crying. 
She wasn't saved by washing and drying. She wasn't saved by kissing Jesus' feet. She wasn't saved by pouring expensive perfumed oil onto Jesus. It was by faith that she was saved. She believed and she believed the preaching of Jesus and of the good news of forgiveness of sins. And by that, she was saved. And what beauty we find in these words, your faith has saved you, go in peace. When a person is all bound up in sin, there is no peace. But what a relief. What a release. When the burden of sin, when the ongoing accumulation of all of the evil acts of our godless past, when all of that is dealt with and when all of that is lifted off of our shoulders and removed and taken away, what are we left with? Peace. Peace. She came with this heavy burden. Now Jesus is saying, go in peace. And there are some here today who who may be carrying a heavy, heavy burden. A burden of guilt, a burden of sin, a burden of sadness and sorrow for what we've done. And God's word to you today might simply be, go in peace. During my field year, so when I was at Bible college, I had a field year where most of the year I spent in in a parish, but for a couple of weeks I spent with the hospital chaplains at the PA in Brisbane. And um, because I was an extra one for the couple of weeks, they... When they divvy it up, there's people who look after individual denominations. So there's a Lutheran looking after the people who sign on their admission form to say that they're Lutherans. And there's a uniting person to look after the uniting people and an Anglican to look after the Anglican people. Because I was an extra, they gave me the not stated. So not stated are people who would appreciate a visit from a chaplain, but aren't really connected with the church. And um, I turned up. It was either the first or second day I was there and had a conversation with a lady and, and she was just, she was lacking peace. And, and when she knew that I was a Christian, she, and she did want to talk about God and, and where she is at with God, but she just felt this terrible burden. And she said, oh, for years, and she's talking about when she was a child and a teenager, for years... I, I didn't think I was racist, but I just didn't think that, that black people were even humans, right? So she, she just had this, this, carrying this guilt of this burden of, of this racism that she had for, for years and years. And she, I, I, don't think, I don't think God can ever forgive me for that. And so, oh, well, I can share with her the message of the gospel. There is no sin too great. And, um, and we talked about grace and the sorts of things that God can forgive people of and does forgive people of. And she confessed her sins to God. And I could see it in her face. There's, she had this terrible burden, this terrible weight. But it was like, oh, there was this peace came upon her as she realized that she could even be forgiven of that for the terrible way that she used to think of, of people of color. The wisdom of God in saving sinners 
is demonstrated by the way that sinners respond when they experience the grace of God and the mercy of God. Um, so here in this passage, there is a nameless woman and her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And the evidence of God's wisdom in saving sinners is thankful worship. However, Simon the Pharisee obviously did not love Jesus. He didn't welcome him. He wasn't a good host. He has this inner turmoil of judgment against Jesus. He obviously didn't love Jesus. And, and that is evidence that he hasn't been forgiven much at all. Or in this case, forgiven at all. See, in his pride, Simon the Pharisee comes across as a person who does not believe that he needs forgiveness. And it's evident in his lack of love for Jesus that he's not forgiven. And so this becomes another example of what Jesus would say, the last will be first and the first will be last. The worst of sinners who know that they need to get right with God through repentance and faith will find themselves experiencing forgiveness and experiencing new life in Jesus. While the self-righteous, whether they go to church or not, who see no need for Jesus, who see no need for repentance, will remain condemned. Righto. So to finish off, we move into the first three verses of chapter 8. And the reason I've held these three verses together with it, you know, the Bible wasn't originally divided up into chapters and verses. Uh, <clears throat> that's something that we humans have done. We've put chapters and verse numbers in, and sometimes a chapter changes when, when the theme is staying the same, and that's what happens here. These three verses, we often just skip over them, but it's important that we don't, because Luke is continuing the theme of much thankfulness because of much forgiveness. And once again, it's the women who teach us this. Jesus is going through the cities and the villages. He's proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. That's the 12 disciples. All right, he's got heaps of disciples, but there's the 12 who are the special ones who become the apostles. But it's the women who get the focus. There's Mary Magdalene. She had seven demons, but Jesus had driven them out of her, and she had this new freedom and release. There's a woman called Joanna, who's the hus whose husband was King Herod's household manager. There's Susanna and many others who are not even named. What did they do? How did they express their thankfulness to Jesus? By giving. They provided for them from out of their means. Much love, much thankfulness, much generosity because of much forgiveness. How did Jesus survive in his ministry? What, what did his ministry go for three years or something? He didn't have a job. He wasn't earning money. He didn't turn stones into bread. That's what the devil had tempted him to do. 
how did he do it? Well, these women and many others provided for them, meaning provided for Jesus and his 12 disciples. They're providing for Jesus and his whole ministry team. How did they do it? From out of their means. Now, that, that would mean a different thing for every different person. Some like Joanna were probably well-to-do. I mean, her husband was in charge of Herod, King Herod's household. She was probably had, had considerable means. But when everyone who has some means provide from out of their means, much is achieved. Have you ever considered that, that giving generously to support those in ministry. It's more than a command. It's an expression of thankfulness. Those who are forgiven in their thanksgiving give in a very practical way. And in this example, it enabled the gospel message of Jesus and his disciples to be proclaimed right throughout the region. You know, some folks see giving as as a command, and they say, okay, well, it's a tithe. I have to give the 10% of my gross income. That, that's a tithe. Well, it was a command in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's an expression of love. And as we, as we love Jesus, we'll actually go way beyond giving because it's a command. Those who are forgiven in their thanksgiving, give in a very practical way. Now, how do we express our thanks to God? You've been forgiven much. I've been forgiven much. How do we express that thanks? We express our thanks in all sorts of ways. We express our thanks in praise. We express our thanks in worship. We express our thanks in, in singing songs of worship and songs of thanksgiving. We express our thanks by, by wanting to spend time with Jesus in his word and in his prayer. We express our thanks by loving others and, and in obedience to Jesus. We, we, we love him and so we obey him and righteous living. And we express our thanksgiving in giving from out of our means. Now, I, I don't want to make this message about how much one does or does not donate to the church each week, but I would be neglectful if I skip over this because what we're learning throughout all of this is, is much forgiveness equals much thanks. And so we don't give to get forgiveness. And we don't give to get extra blessings. But when your heart and when my heart are filled with an overwhelming thanksgiving to God, we will give from out of our means. Now, some may feel that they do not have a means to give. But you know what? God has given every single person a means to live. And if he has given us a means to live, he has also given us a means to give. Uh, some folk like to give to a specific project. And it's like, okay, um, 
I can have that project because I know that I fully support that project. That's, that's great. And I can feel that I've achieved that. And for them, it sort of becomes like a legacy and, and there's a, a level of self-satisfaction. Yep, I've achieved that. But you know what? Our giving isn't meant to be about self-satisfaction. We give because we're thankful to Jesus. And the reality is when it comes to church and ministry, the ongoing day-to-day provision for those who are in ministry is the most important thing we can give to. Jesus and his 12 disciples were provided for out of the means of those who are thankful. How thankful are we? As you lot know, I only give teaching just as often as, as what God brings it up in his word. And I haven't taught on teaching for quite a while now. Um, But it's probably time to just let you know, since August last year is the first time that Bush Disciples began, um, that our offerings are now dropped below what we need to meet our our annual running costs. And we've just finished up the year. We've actually got a deficit of about $11,000. So I believe this is a God-ordained time to highlight this, uh, to be filled with thankfulness toward God. And if you are not giving from out of your means, maybe this is a way that you can begin to express your thankfulness by giving from out of your means. Uh, Or if you're giving below your means, maybe it's time to express your thankfulness by increasing your giving to what your means allow. But let's never forget, giving is not the only way that we express our thankfulness. In our thankfulness, we love Jesus with every fibre of our being. We love Jesus with everything we have and with everything that we do. And we also love Jesus when we welcome tax collectors and sinners as he did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful when we remember how hopeless we were and how lost in sin and death, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving, thanks that that you have become our saviour. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to remember that we were once not holy and to remember that now we are to remember that that we didn't earn this holiness we didn't buy this holiness but you paid the price for our redemption on the cross and lord give us a heart like yours you are known for being a friend of sinners may we be known for that too Help us to love the world as you love the world. Help us to welcome the sinner as you welcome the sinner. And Lord, may we express our thanks with every fibre of our being, with everything we have, with everything that we do. May we express our thanks toward you, God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.